House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Well, welcome back to the House of Mystery. I'm Al Warren from KKNW 1150 AM Seattle. And this is Kev Thompson from WXEI, the talk of Crestview. Okay, here we are. Now, this is a, another great show coming up. This um, this is one of my favorite books I've listened to. <laughs> you, know, you know you're getting old when you're listening all the time, not reading anymore. I did find one thing good about uh, getting older. I qualified for um, Seniors Day at the drugstore. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> I almost jumped. I almost jumped on the lady when she said that to me. I said, "What do you mean? <laughs> are we are we already there, Al?" <laughs> Just like, oh my god! So that's one good thing. Anyway, so and the show is kind of re- really relates to that a little bit. Um. So uh, we'll we'll bring in our our, our guest and uh, he's uh, and we're going to talk about his newest book. It's called Heaven on Earth. Heavens on Earth, actually, is what it is. I, my glasses. So, Doctor Michael Shermer, thank you for being on the show. Glad to have, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so uh, let's start out with you know your book. So. That was a great book, and I'm and I'm glad you read it. Um, I think it comes out better when the author reads the book. Uh, I agree. That's uh, I do it because um, I enjoy listening to audiobooks that are read by the authors. Richard Dawkins does that. Christopher Hitchens uh, and, and lots of others, and and I enjoy hearing the author's voice, even if it's not a great professional actor's voice. It, it's still. Um, I think makes it a little bit more authentic, and and I enjoy doing it. It's actually hard work. I've met a lot of authors who have tried to do it and they can't. They give up. Uh, it's it, it's actually much more difficult than you think. You stumble along and you screw up every other sentence, and you have to do retake after retake after retake, and it takes you know hours, days, weeks to do it. You know, it's a job. It, it made me respect uh, voice actors and actors in general who do this for a living. It's it's quite a a skill, learn skill. Oh, it's it's crazy. I'm I'm doing one now. There's a difference, but because when you write it, um, you feel it better than if you're reading someone else's. So, um, I I think it's great. But I have to say, the um, did did it change the way you wrote the book from from reading the books? Um, a little bit. Although when I'm writing, I'm not thinking about that. But um, uh, in past books. When I've gone back to read them after I've written them, then that gets me to thinking about writing a little bit more concise sentences, not too many parenthetical notes and side sidetracks yeah. <laughs> uh, on, on subjects. Just thinking, well, you know, is this really working toward my central thesis, or am I just, you know, rambling on here, yammering away, uh, just for fun? Yeah. <laughs> so it keeps you focused a little bit. Yeah. So what was the idea behind the book, Heavens on Earth? Oh, well, this is an extension of my previous work. On, uh, I've written them on science and pseudoscience, science and religion, science and God, science and morality. So this was kind of the next big subject, science and the afterlife, science and, 
and immortality, heaven, you know, the whole thing, what happens after you die, can we live forever, um, these kinds of questions. And it's not just uh, looking at the religious versions of this, and there are many, and they all differ, um, but also the scientific attempts to, as Woody Allen says, I don't want to live on in my apartment, I want to live on, I don't want to live on in my work, I want to live on in my apartment. Um, you know, there are scientists that are attempting to defeat aging, to, you know, get humans to live hundreds of years or even thousands of years. And I'm skeptical of all this. I don't think it can be done, uh, at least not now, not for a long time, certainly not in our generation. So uh, my skepticism, you know, I published Skeptic Magazine. I write a column for Scientific American called Skeptic. So my take on things is usually, well, what's the skeptical angle here? What's, you know, what's the hook? And that's the hook that, you know, <laughs> both religious and scientific attempts to achieve immortality fail, both in principle and in practice. Yeah, yeah. I guess the scientific one would be the... Uh singularity and and uh you kind of touch off on that in the book um and and it's funny because you're you're right it seems like each generation thinks we're the generation that it's going to happen or it's the generation of end times it's it's it seems like it, we we're always thinking this um yeah that's right it's it, it starts at a very early age we know from research on pre preschoolers, toddlers, um, this is at Paul Bloom's research at Yale. With uh, you show children a little uh, puppet show of a little mouse gets munched by an alligator, and and is dead. Then you ask them, well, where's the mouse? And they they, they think the mouse has gone somewhere else. And he's hungry, he's thirsty, he's, he's scared, he misses his mommy, and he wants to go home. Um, you know, they they imagine the mouse is continuing on even after the his body is dead. That somehow his soul continues on. Now, of course, they have no conception of the soul, but it's just a sense that uh, this is not the end. And the reason for that is because we cannot imagine not existing. We can't imagine being dead, because to imagine anything, you have to exist. You have to be alive, conscious, aware. And death is none of those things. It's nothing. So you can't imagine nothing. It's impossible. So, you know, we're set up with this something of a paradox. We, we know death is real. All 100 billion people have come and gone before us. None of them will come back. So we know it's real, but and yet we can't imagine what that would mean for us. We, we can only imagine ourselves continuing. So the idea that our bodies will die naturally leads to the conclusion, well, that, that I, I, whatever, whoever I is, the self, the soul, must continue somewhere else. Now, that natural cognitive... Um, this conclusion that we make does not mean it's true. Uh, that's a separate question, but it's an interesting problem for cognitive psychologists to study. You know, why do we think that? And and so I explore all those ideas in the book. So let's say I'm a little conspiratorial about this. Let's say that we actually achieve physical immortality. Would do you think that it would it would get selective that only certain people will be immortal, or will we? immortalize the whole planet and cause a problem with population. Yeah. Sorry, my dog. My, dog is, my dog's name is Hitch, by the way, uh, who I, I quote in the book, Christopher Hitchens, who's a friend of mine. Uh, kind of scared me. <laughs> like, the question, question was what that mean? <laughs> That's right, yeah, it was a nice question. Calm down. Tranquilo, Hitch. Tranquilo, now. He hears people outdoors. Um... Yes, well, okay, so there's a counter-argument to the claim that we, you know, we should try to live forever, and that is, well, who gets to do that? Because, of course, initially, any successful technology will be super expensive, so only the rich and elite will be able to afford it. 
Um, but that's not really a good counter-argument because all technologies come down in price. Uh, you know, electric cars is a, or computers is certainly a good example. Uh, you know, they started off super expensive. Now everybody's got them. Yeah, the same thing will be true with electric cars. You know, uh, Elon Musk succeeded with the Tesla. It's super expensive to begin with, but now the new models, the Model 3 coming out, very affordable by anyone, and all automobile manufacturers will have them. Affordable, fast, luxurious, nice electric cars uh, that everybody can, uh, almost anybody can afford. And, and that would be true with any uh, longevity technologies. You know, let's not worry about immortality at the moment. Let's just say there's some new technologies that come on board that help us live to 150, 200 healthy, strong, cognitively aware lives. Uh, you know, yes, initially only the rich will be able to afford it. But uh, the way capitalism works is that the price will come down as the demand goes up. And, of course, the demand will be super high, so the price will go super low, and everyone will be able to afford it. Now, the the next counter-argument is, well, what about overpopulation, things like that. To which I say, listen, don't worry about that. We're gonna, we can solve those problems later. Uh, you know, we've already solved, solved you know, feeding, uh, well, feeding over six billion people now every year, um, and, which is quite startling because, you know, it, it was predicted that overpopulation would kill billions of uh, people through starvation back in the 60s when we could only afford to, to feed a billion. So we, you know, we one thing our species is good at is overcoming obstacles and solving problems. Yeah, yeah, and I'm sure there'd be another problem if we start living that much longer. What's going to happen to our bodies? Because look at all the medications and the problems we get with people living as old as they are now. Uh, well, so what we don't know is, let's say you break through the upper ceiling of 120 years or so, and and you go to 150, 200, you know, there, there's undoubtedly other issues that will come up. We have no idea uh, what, what will happen to the body at that point. And, and, but, again, we could solve those problems if we could get there. But, you know, let's be honest here in terms of what we actually know scientifically, and that is no one's going to live past 120. I, it's just not going to happen unless there's some major breakthroughs, and I'm talking about huge medical breakthroughs, like, Resequencing the genome through a CRISPR-like technology that uh, reconstructs the telomeres at the end of chromosomes that allow your cells to divide indefinitely without becoming cancer. There are cells that divide indefinitely; they're called cancer. So that's no good. Um, so you don't want to, you know, have a body that lives 200 that, that that's just a, a pile of cancerous mush. So. Um, we, uh, you know, these, these are enormous problems. You know, the people that talk about longevity make it sound like you know if we just take this one thing, curcumin or, or vitamin C or, or omega three fish oils, you know, this is going to do it. No, no, no. <laughs> First of all, those things there's very little evidence that they make any difference at all, even now. You know, just in terms of your health, uh, much less help you live beyond 120. Uh, so, you know, what we need to strive for is just solving specific problems. Like, you know, the longevity people, you know, if they could just solve cancer and Alzheimer's and senility, you know, these are these themselves are huge problems. I, I meet, talk to people that work in, in these areas. And, you know, we've made a lot of progress in certain cancers, but there's many, many more cancers. We, we've made no progress in Alzheimer's. We've made next, next to no progress. There are no treatments, none. Not even any on the books that are being tested that could make any difference at all in, in, in even reduce, in much reducing the symptoms, much less curing the disease. So, 
Uh, and again, the, you know, we've made you know a, a enormous progress in medical technology over the centuries, but you know, it just shows you how hard these problems are. Not insoluble, but difficult. Well, you know, we just had earlier is. Uh, Marie Copeland and, and from the Kenneth Copeland mi uh, Ministries and saying that we didn't even need our flu shot because uh, Jesus does it for us. <laughs> so. Yeah, I, yeah, that was pretty, that was just bizarre. Yeah. Beyond bizarre. <laughs> I, I just couldn't even believe what I was watching. Uh, I mean, you know, it, it, I guarantee you if she gets sick, she's going to the doctor. She's not going to sit there. <laughs> Well, maybe she will. Maybe she will just sit there and pray and die. But you know, and, and there are people that do that. Uh, you know, Christian scientists don't believe in medicine, and uh, they just want to pray, pray it away. And uh, and they're the ones whose kids, when the kids are dying, the, you know, social services are called and the kids are taken away from them. You know, the state has to intervene because um, you know death is not acceptable for religious freedom. Anyway, so yeah, that's um, anyway. So the point of my book is to look at all these different scenarios, religious, scientific, secular, philosophical, metaphysical, and, and explore all the themes behind them. But in the end, it, none of it really matters because we don't live in the afterlife, the hereafter. We live in this life, in the here and now. And uh, you know, I can't prove there's no afterlife, and I might even be happy about it if I close my eyes and wake up and there's my, my parents and my loved ones that uh, have past and my friends like Isaac Asimov and Carl Sagan and Stephen Jay Gould and some of my you know, some of the great Christopher Hitchens, you know, that uh, past, uh, it, would, it would be great to see him again. I doubt it, but that that's going to happen. But if it did, I, I, I wouldn't object to it. And uh, nor would I turn away technologies that really worked to help me live past 120, you know, in a physically you know, cogent state, mentally cogent state. And, and, and it'd be great, but I just think uh, you know, at some point it begins to sound like pie in the sky, and therefore I'm skeptical. Well, let, let's revisit the the Copeland thing for just a second, though. I think we're dismissing that just a little bit too soon. Oh, yeah? It, yes, I do. Um, even if we remove Jesus and religion out of the equation, is there still not the power of the mind? I mean, where the mind is, the body goes also as proven in depression. It, sometimes if you can make some changes, you know, to the way you think, the way you process things, there's even a physical reaction to it. So if these people really believe that they're being healed by the power of Jesus, but it's still the mindset working on the body, what's wrong with that? Uh, nothing. If, if, if any of these techniques work to improve the quality of life for people, then I'm in favor of it. That's fine. Um, but the question is, when you say, does it work, what do we mean by that? So if you say, well, look, meditation works for me. Okay, that's great. You know, your headache went away, your stress levels decreased, whatever, fine. Uh, but what we want to know from a scientific perspective is, does it work for everyone? Or does it work for you know, two-thirds of people that try 50 minutes a day of meditation, three days a week, while they were also having this amount of sleep and ate this diet and so on? You know, that, uh, then what are the effects? Um, you know, so in some measurable, quantifiable way, we want to know if something works scientifically. And so those are kind of two different things. Does it work for you personally? That's one thing. Does it work for everyone, or to, to, to what extent does it work for other people? That's the second question. And 
So what I'm after in most of my work uh, as a scientist and skeptic is the second one. Um, I'm, I'm totally personally interested in does it work for individuals, but we want to know collectively does it work. And that's a much harder question. It, it's, it's why the FDA does not just hand out approvals for drugs or whatever. You have to prove it. You have to provide your clinical data, your controlled experiments, your epidemiological studies, and so on before they say, okay, you can go ahead and sell your cure for cancer or AIDS or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and the reason for that is because most ideas are wrong, even those by scientists. Uh, most of the ideas that people come up with are not true. So science is by, by necessity conservative and skeptical and cautious because historically and by experience we know that even good, brilliant, high-achieving scientists are wrong about most of the stuff they they think up. So <clears throat> Karl Popper called this conjecture and refutation. That is, we conjecture, throw hypotheses out, try this idea, try that idea. And then, and then we refute them one by one. And the ones that are left standing that is not yet refuted or falsified are the ones we can be confident, you know, have some degree of, of verisimilitude or truth. And not true with capital T, but have yet to be falsified. Right. I noticed also in your book you, you touched off on reincarnation and you talked about the little boy that was uh, coming back as a pilot. Um, have you ever found any stories or any evidence of reincarnation uh, without, you know, details that were hidden? No. Um, I have chapters on both near-death experiences and reincarnation in the book and, and you know, they both fail to deliver... Um, valid evidence of an afterlife, and, and both are fraught with, with issues individually. Reincarnation is, uh, has a couple of logistical problems, like, you know, 100 billion people have you know, come and lived and died, 7.5 billion people alive today. Where are all those other souls? Uh, and presumably the people born today have their own souls, so why are they being inhabited by some other soul? I mean, it sounds like some crazy, uh, you know, exorcist-type movie being, you know, possessed by a, a demon or which is what, essentially what it, being possessed by another soul would be like. Say, so what does this mean? Like a multiple personality in, in, inside their competing souls battling each other for expression or some such thing. I mean, you know, it starts to get crazy once you start thinking about it. Not to mention most of the souls seem to be hovering around the subcontinent of India waiting for bodies to open up and, and, and inhabit. Um, I mean, it's just, it's just sort of crazy talk if you, if you think about it very hard at all. And then the specific cases, like, you know, a young boy is born and he's got, like, uh, a little birthmark on his side and he has some weird memories or dreams about being a Civil War soldier or a World War II pilot. Fighter pilot. In the book. Fighter pilot I use in the book. Um, you know, it's a, but, but what constitutes a hit? Uh, I mean, why would a particular dream a boy has really match? a story that you just happen to find online somewhere. I mean, why not some other story or no story at all? I mean, there's a certain amount of randomness there. And what constitutes a hit on birthmarks and the wound, entry wound of a, of a kill shot in, in, in some ancient soldier who's, who's died? I mean, it, it, it's, it's not science at all. It, it's just kind of fanciful storytelling and, and what I call patternicity, finding patterns that aren't real. Um, you know, it looks like a match, but you know, it's not a match to, in somebody else's mind looking at the same data set. So that's the problem with those. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what's your fear on death, or what's your analysis? How do you handle it? 
Oh, I don't think about it. <laughs> Except for when I'm writing my book. <laughs> uh, I, I'd say, you know, I'm, uh, I, I'm pretty optimistic by temperament. It's not something I'm worried about. But I do take seriously the argument I made right at the beginning of Heavens on Earth that um, you cannot conceive of death. There's nothing to worry about. It's not, it's not even anything you can experience. I mean, the most you could experience would be, I suppose the worst would be just, uh, you know, suffering from uh, cancer or something like that, and you're you're aware that you're deteriorating. It's a, you can experience something like the dying process, but lots of people do that and they come back and they're fine, uh, or heart attacks, you know, that uh, and they recover, so they don't actually die. You can't actually experience death, and 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 experiencing nothing is impossible. So I'm I'm really not worried about it. I mean, there's really nothing to worry about. In fact, I, I recommend not worrying or thinking about it too much, because then you'll miss out on this life, which is the only life we know for sure we have. Again, we don't know what happens after life, probably nothing, but but, but if something happens and, and you're some, on some other side, fine. But none of that matters now. You, you know, here is what matters. Now is what matters. Yeah. And so, this, yep, go ahead. Oh, so, so what is your response to these people who've experienced near-death experiences? Uh, well, the near-death near experience, you know, the experiences are real, for sure. Lots of people have had them. And, uh, but, the, but the question is, does it, does it represent what's in, only in the head or in the head plus some, somewhere else? Are they actually going somewhere? And we know you can replicate all of the characteristics, the floating out of the body, the white the tunnel, the white light at the end of the tunnel, the passing through the white light, seeing other people. All this is replicable through um, hallucinogenic drugs, through brain stimulation, through oxygen deprivation of the brain. These famous studies by this uh, Air Force pilot uh, physician who accelerated pilots in a centrifuge so they black out. Many of them had these kinds of what he called dreamlets or these kind of quasi-near-death experiences floating out of the body, the white light, the tunnel. Now, this has to do with oxygen deprivation of the cortex in the back of your brain where visual uh, processing is, is, is happens. And uh, depriving that part of the brain of oxygen just happens and it accelerates in a centrifuge. The blood is pressed to the center of your brain and you faint. Essentially, you just faint. And that's what happens to the fainting is you get this, people report that, the constriction. The blood from the eyes gets pushed toward, away, away from the retina and so it shuts down in a kind of a, like a tubular or sort of a, tube-like way or, uh, you know, a, a tunnel. You see that tunnel. That, 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 that's just oxygen deprivation. So all, all these things we can replicate. We know where they happen. We even know where they happen in the brain. So it's just brain chemistry. And, uh, you know, the idea that it's something else, and, and it, how would you know? Okay, you might report it. You can say, wow, I went to heaven. I, I was there. You know, I report on Eben Alexander's famous trip. He wrote a book, Proof of Heaven. Uh, you know, but it's all, it's only, we only have his word. I was there. It's like talking to somebody who takes ayahuasca. And they say, wow, I was in this incredible, I went to this other dimension. There were beings there, and I had this incredible experience, rich colors, sounds, bright lights, incredible feeling of love and connectedness to the universe and other people. Okay, but that's the same thing that, that mystics who meditate report or, Acid droppers in the '60s report, uh, or people that meditate a lot report. You know that uh, it's just an internal state. I can't possibly know that you really went somewhere uh, because I can't get inside your head. So we end up with a really deep philosophical problem of epistemology. How do we know it's true? And we can never get inside someone else's head, and so we end up hitting a wall there. 
Well, you know, I, I have to agree with you to, to some extent. As hard as I've tried with the hallucinogenics, I can't quite get to the NDE. I mean, I'm, I'm trying as we speak. But what I find curious about some near-death experiences are individuals who say that they go to heaven or they go to hell, and they encounter relatives and are able to physically describe them without ever having met them or seen photos of them. Ha- yes, well, um, again, we only have people's accounts of these things, and those accounts change over time, and they get distorted and, and, and whatnot. And, of course, if enough people have these, you're going to get a handful of really uh, spooky um, anomalies of just you know really weird coincidences. I write about that and have a chapter on, in, in Heavens on Earth on uh, anomalous psychological experiences, including those I've had. And uh, what do you make of those? Well, you don't have to make anything of them. You could just enjoy the emotional impact of that connection that you experienced, what it meant for you. But we don't have to go further than that. We don't have to then say, okay, that means there's a paranormal supernatural realm and an afterlife and a God and a, all this other stuff. It's, so, it's just okay to say, you know what, I, I don't really know what happened. I don't have a good ex- explanation for it. I'm just going to leave it at that. And that, that's what I conclude anyway. Well, Michael, you can't just drop me off at the corner like that. You, you kind of breezed right over. You said you, you have had these type of experience. Um, how do you describe it? I mean, what, is, what, what physical or mental or emotional impact did that have on you? Well, I've had a few of these. It depends which one. So, I, I mean, I've written in other books about my alien abduction experience and, and some, you know, sort of UFO sighting type things, that, you know, which end up having perfectly prosaic explanations. The one I read about in, in, in Heavens on Earth is uh, this uh, experience I had with my wife on our wedding day where this radio that my wife had shipped over from Germany. She's from Cologne. She was raised by a single mom and her grandfather. This radio, this little transistor radio, was something her and her grandfather used to listen to. And it was dead. It had been dead for years. And so, you know, she shipped it over. I replaced the batteries, tried to get it working again. And, you know, it, it just, I couldn't. It was dead. So I just threw it in the drawer in our back bedroom and, and uh, left it there for months. And then, you know, we decided to get married. And on wedding day, you know, she's feeling a little blue about not having her family and friends there here you know, in Southern California, here where I live. And, um, and so, so we take a quiet moment in the back of the house, and we hear music playing. It's like, whoa, music, what's that? I don't have a stereo system in the house. It wasn't my iPhone. It wasn't my laptop. It wasn't the neighbors. And they suddenly realize that it's, you know, coming out of this desk drawer. So we open the drawer, and there's this radio playing, perfectly tuned to a station playing love music. And, and it was like, whoa, that's incredible. So we show it, share that with our uh, friends and family that were there, and, and you know, it played the rest of the day and into the night and then went dead the next day, and that was it. I couldn't get it working. It's like, okay, come on, this is too weird. Now, my wife, Jennifer, she's an atheist. She doesn't, you know, make any grand conclusions about grandfather who was there in the house with us, nothing like that. But 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 it was uh, the timing, you know, and the, and the emotional significance of it for us was meaningful. And that's okay. That's good enough to say that's it, no more, no less, uh, and that's you know, that, and that's how I interpret it. And uh, I, so in the book, I write an expanded version of this that includes a lot of the letters I got when I first wrote about this in Scientific American. 
And, you know, people mostly share their stories with me, hundreds of them, of just incredible stories, coincidences like that. You know, synchronicity, call it whatever you want. <laughs> Weird <laughs> stuff that happens that has emotional salience for the person that it happens to. And uh, and to that I say, well, good. You know, if, if it changes your life, makes things better, that, that's great. Uh, but we, we don't need to construct a whole paranormal supernatural worldview around that. Just to say it, it was significant for me and a story, full stop. And, and, you know, we can't explain everything in science. I don't know that there's no afterlife for God, for sure. I doubt it, but, um, but I'm happy to, to change my mind if, you know, if I end up someplace and there it is, okay, fine. But, uh, but we'll see. You know, we'll see. In the meantime, you know, don't, don't forget to pay attention to now because this is where we live. Now, would, do you think, though, having said all of that, and, and like you said, it, it, I, I'll, I'll agree with you, sometimes we assign much more significance to an event than we should, and it's usually leaning towards the spiritual. So would you say that maybe we are wired neurologically to believe in God? Yes, absolutely. Definitely. You know, not, not, there's not like a God module in the brain, but... The neural networks associated with finding patterns in nature that are not true, which happens a lot, uh, and impugning those patterns with agency, that is, invisible forces at work, you know, whether it's spirits or gods or angels or demons or, you know, what, whatever we think it is, or God himself, uh, or herself, that, uh, that, you know, that, that's just something uh, that human brains do. And uh, now, of course, you know, to the theist, you can just say, well, that's God designed brains to do that so that we would know him. <laughs> so there really is a God, they would say. Uh, to which I say, well, how do you know? Because <laughs> that, you know, the fact that we believe something doesn't make it true. I believe in, you know, I can read Harry Potter novels or the, or, or the Lord of the Rings novels and conceive of, you know, these fanciful beings, but that doesn't mean they exist just because I can conceive of them. So, um, you know, again, it comes down to this, you know, open-ended question that we just don't know. And uh, the skeptical position is, the, the default position is skepticism, that, you know, the null hypothesis, your hypothesis is not true until proven otherwise. And, of course, we, we do we do prove things all the time in science and accept them. The Big Bang Theory of the Origins of the Universe, the germ theory of disease, you know, and so on. These, these, these things we accept because there's evidence for it. Otherwise, we remain skeptical. So do you think that science, because we were just talking about scientific developments that are going to possibly prolong life, and, you know, we're really trying. So in these efforts, do you think that science is finding less and less and less of a need for the, air quote, belief in God, that now we're almost able to do what God has done? Um, y yes, well, we, we can't quite do what God is purported to be able to do, although... Sending a Tesla Roadster into into orbit is pretty cool. <laughs> it's almost <laughs> godlike. <laughs> think Elon Musk is God. Uh, I, I, I I think what's been happening is that what we have in the past attributed to God uh, is more and more being attributed to natural forces. So we've essentially replaced the God hypothesis with natural laws. Now the theists could argue they do argue this that. Um, that God created the natural laws, so it's still God operating indirectly in the chain of causality. Okay, fine. But, you know, at, at some point, you got to stop the causal chain somewhere. 
you know, why stop it with God? Why not ask, well, who caused God or what caused God? I mean, if all things in the universe need, need a cause, because all effects have causes, then who or what caused God? To which the theist says, well, God is that which does not need to be caused. Yeah, well, then why can't I just say the universe is that which does not need to be caused? I mean, these are just words we use to describe things. And, you know, it, it, why impute agency, some kind of being, an intentional being that, that's making it happen? Why not just leave it at the natural laws are operating? End of story. So, I've got to ask this. <laughs> I have to ask this. It, in essence, as I'm listening to the discussion and I'm listening to the answers, it's really coming down to one question. And again, you know, we can lend this to future technology. But the question is, do we have a spirit? Or are we just a transferable consciousness? Immortality can also be technological where we will build bodies that last forever and eventually transfer our consciousness into that body. Well, that's that's one theory that the mind uploaders want to do or, or uh, more spiritually, I guess, people like Deepak Chopra and the Eastern wisdom traditions that consciousness continues beyond the body. Now, if you don't believe it happens naturally, then you have to build your own platform to do this, which is what the mind uploaders want to do. They want to copy all your memories, your so-called connectome, the analog to your genome, which is the pattern of all your, uh, essentially, blueprint to make your body. The connectome would be the blueprint for all your memories. That's yourself. That's their argument. And if you can copy it and you know, upload it to the cloud or wherever, then, then it can continue <laughs> on. Well, that's the idea. But the, the, the couple problems with that, first, we're not even remotely close to being able to do anything like this at all. It's going to be a long time before we can do that. Well, and yeah, even, if we could, even if we could, it's not you. It's just a copy of you. Your point of view self, so that's your mem self, your memory self. Um, but you're, you, you're not just your memories. You're more than that. You're your point of view. It's you looking out through your eyes, continuity from one day to the next. You, know, you fall asleep, you wake up, it's still you. You go into general anesthesia, you wake up hours later, it's still you. Um, it, but I'm not at all sure that if you copied you, uh, your, your, all your memories, copied your brain, put it up in, in the cloud and inside a computer and turned it on, that, that you would suddenly appear there. You'd still be, if we did this when you were alive, by scanning your brain in a sophisticated fMRI brain scanner, you'd still be standing there alive going, no, 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 I'm right here. I don't know what that is you just put up in the cloud, but that's not me. I'm me. That's a copy of me. And no more does a twin look at a sibling and say, there I go. Or, or part of me, because I don't have enough gigs. Um, no, and don't we change constantly over 10 years? Don't our cells completely change? That's right, yeah. It's not, you're, you're not you anyway. Right. It's not, you are, can't be just your physical body, because that's completely replaced about every 7 to 10 years. All your cells are new. Uh, it's a pattern of you. Yeah, whatever that means. So most people think of it as, well, you know, my memories, my temperament, my personality, the, the, the thing that my friends would describe me as such and such, that's me. You know, and it's kind of a fuzzy set of things, which changes over time. Your memories change, your temperament changes a little bit, not willy-nilly. I mean, there's a certain continuity of our temperament and personality through life. You know, we know that people that score high on on introversion, they're shy. Uh, they tend to be that way most of their life. It's, it's mostly a heritable thing. Probably 50, 60% of that is heritable. Now you can tweak it a little bit. You know, you can sort of work yourself up into going to more parties and talking to people and trying not to be so shy. But the feeling 
of being introverted is still there. And that's likely to stay throughout your life. So that's what we mean by you, you know, this sort of cer- certain set of characteristics that, that are relatively permanent throughout a lifespan. Um, that, it's a hard question for immortalists is, well, how do we keep that going? Again, like Woody Allen living on in, in my apartment instead of in my work, how do you do that? You know, cryonics, you free somebody and bring them up a thousand years later. You know, none of this is going to work, uh, technologically speaking. Well, what about the people that have already frozen their head now and they're expecting to come back? They're not coming back. No. They're not coming back. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, Brain freeze constantly. <laughs> yeah, well, the problem is that the freezing process and the defrosting process damages the cell. So even if you manage to get somebody awake, they're, they're, they're dead and you bring them back to life. You know, it's never been done, not even on mammals, nothing. Uh, then, you know, where, where's... If, you, if they've lost their memories, if there's too much damage, then it's just a zombie walking around. So what's the point of doing it if it's not... You have to restore the person's person, their soul, their, their self, whatever that is. Or you just be careful and put the microwave on defrost. Um. <laughs> yeah, very slowly. No, the, 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 they have new techniques now where they pump the body full of this cryoprotective agent, like a, like like an antifreeze, and to try to protect the cells. The problem is, it, while this works with embryos, you know, you've heard of frozen embryos for IVF, that works. But embryos are tiny; they're itty bitty. They're just a couple cells. The brain is a hundred billion cells. You know, restoring those all during the freezing process. Not to mention the fact that this is done on the worst day of your life, the day you died. Uh, I mean, as far as the state is concerned, cryonics is a form of burial. You're not allowed to do this before you're dead. It would be a form of assisted uh, physician-assisted suicide, which is illegal. So, you know, this, you know, it's just fraught with problems. Now, what about, uh, I'd like to get your thoughts on cellular memory, you know, our memory or our spirit is actually on the cellular level in organ transplants where people have received organs and have taken on certain traits of the donors. Yeah, um, I don't buy that. I mean, what it is is what's called essentialism. It feels like part of myself is in my organs, uh, and so if I have one replaced, then some of that other person, the donor's personality is going to come with the liver or the heart or whatever. Uh, that's something we do. I mean, just, again, as part of that agenticity, uh, patternicity process I talked about, we tend to impugn uh, agency into the patterns we think we find and, and, and the essence of something, like this is uh, Bruce Hood's research, you know, like would you wear Mr. Rogers' sweater? You know, most people say, oh, yeah, it's warm and nice and good. Would you wear Hitler's jacket? Ugh. <laughs> no, because it's evil. You know, the evilness of Hitler somehow goes into the jacket. Uh, and uh, so, uh, no, I, you know, it's just, there's no evidence for that. That, that personality is somehow stored anywhere in, um, you know, in our organs. Yeah. Oh, Michael, you're, you're killing me, Michael. <laughs> well, no, 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 no. I, it's a positive. <laughs> not, not literally. Pardon, pardon, pardon the pun. But no, reason I'm asking this, and I'm sorry, Al, I didn't mean to step on you. Reason I'm asking that is, it just came to mind yesterday. My young daughter got her driver's permit, and on the way home, yes, be careful, everybody. She's out there now. 
But, you know, she's looking at it in the, in, on the drive home, and she's like, oh, they marked no on organ donor. I want to be an organ donor. And I'm like, what? Why? She's like, well, if something happens to me, I want somebody to get my organs, and I want you to feel like I'm still alive in that person. It's yeah, well, right. Uh, well, organ, organ donation is, is the one, uh, one donation process. You, you want to be the donor, not the recipient. Um, because presumably that's where your self is located, in your brain. Uh, we know that uh, for sure. Although you're not just a brain, you're, you're, you're extended. Um, your extended brain essentially through your body. Your whole nervous system runs throughout your whole body. So that's also part of you. So the people that just raise their heads, well, of course they think you're going to clone the body, but uh, you know, that, that, all that's pretty dicey. <laughs> so I think if you're going to go cloning, go for the whole body. It's not that much more expensive. You just get an insurance policy and you make the cryonics organization the beneficiary of the insurance policies. You know, pretty much most responsible people have life insurance policies. So you can just get one and, and put Alcor Life Foundation or whoever as the beneficiary. It's not that expensive. That's not the reason not to do it. Um, the reason not to do it, I think, is because is it's not going to work. <laughs> so, uh, but they point out, rightly so, if you're cremated, you have zero chance of being resurrected in the future. At least cryonics, it's, it's, whatever the, however low the number is, it's still greater than zero. Free will, or free won't. Which is it? <laughs> <laughs> Are we in the lightning round now? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Fox, Fox. Yeah. You're in the chair now. It's, it's the time. No, I was just uh, thinking about another part of what you were doing in your book, and, and about free will, and about the consciousness. You know, the, could you explain that a little bit better? Of how? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a hard problem. And it's, something people seem to be, you know, intensely curious about. And I can see why, I guess. Um, you know, so the, the issue is, uh, are, are we the architects of our own uh, behavior and choices? You know, well, not completely. I mean, for sure, we know that your genes have an influence, your parents have an influence, your environment, and so on, or, or as the joke goes, uh, you know, nature or nurture, either way, it's your parents' fault. <laughs> and in a way, it's, it's kind of funny because it is a way of sloughing out personal responsibility and, and individual autonomy and, and, and volition. You know, if, if you're not the architect of your choices, then you don't have to be accountable for them. Well, you know, we, society is never going to go down that rabbit hole because we have to hold people accountable to have a, uh, you know, a, a just and civil society. But, but that, that's separate from the question is, yeah, but, but, but what's really the architect of our, of our actions? So the determinist position is that the universe is determined and you're not making any choices at all. It's just, you know, neurons firing all the way down to um, cells, molecules, atoms, all the way back to the Big Bang. You know, it's all determined. Okay. And, and even quantum physics that has a certain level of indeterminacy, um, that doesn't give you free will. That would just add an element of randomness to your behavior. You're still not in control. Now, the, the libertarian free will position is it's called no relation to the political party position, uh, is that you're truly free. There's just like a little homunculus in there making choices. But that falls, that fails, no one, almost no professional philosophers accept that, because the little homunculus, the little mini-me inside me running the show, would have to have a little mini-mini-me inside the mini-me inside me, and that mini-mini-me would need a mini-mini-mini-me inside the mini-me inside me, you know, and so on, ad infinitum. So that, that doesn't really solve the problem at all. So the, the most popular position amongst professional philosophers is what's called compatibilism. 
That is, we live in a determined universe, but the, the choices we make are part, are part of the causal net of the determined universe. But we're still making choices, and the fact that we uh, have the fact that we are conscious and self-aware of our choices means we can tweak them. We can tweak the choice architecture. We can say, look, I, I can say, look, I, I know future Michael Shermer is going to get hungry around four o'clock, and he's going to want a chocolate chip cookie or something fun. So I will have something now. Here it is, 1:45. I'll have a little snack now, like an apple, and that'll get me through till dinner. It's almost like I'm talking about somebody else. You know, future. There's me now, and then there's the future Michael Shermer, which is like a funny Simpsons episode where Homer really, really wants to eat this big pile of donuts. And he's having a fight with himself. You know, should I have the donuts or not? And then he then he suddenly declares. That's future Homer's problem. That sucker, and then he eats the donuts. <laughs> so often I feel like that. But being self-aware means I can uh, I can change the causal net that I am part of. I can just say, okay, I'm going to do this instead of that. Now, a determinist would say, yeah, but you're still determined to do that. Okay, fine, whatever. But in terms of like how we actually act in the world, no, no one acts as if like their determinism is real. People walk around making choices. They, you know, they look left and right before they cross the street. Why bother? If it's all determined or even predetermined since the Big Bang, what, what's the point? Uh, you know, it's well because looking left and right was itself determined. Yeah, why? You know, you, you you choose to do that. You choose to look left or right. There's a certain element of action, volition, volitional action there. Uh, so anyway, that's how I. I look at it. It's, it's, it's what's called degrees of freedom. Dan Dennett wrote a great book on this called uh, Freedom Evolves. That, like, what's the difference between me and the guy addicted to Oxycontin? Okay, if we're all determined, uh, then, then he clearly lacks as many choices as I do. I have more choices than he does. I, I can choose not to do the drug. He has a much harder time choosing not to do the drug. Why? And it, well, we know because it's rewired his brain. It's like, yeah, but what does that mean? Uh, I mean, he's more determined, and I'm less determined. What does that mean? Well, it means I have an element of free choice, volition. That's where volition comes in. So degrees of freedom is a good way of thinking about that. Yeah, it's just it's just a, a thought of uh, your body, your mind decides to do something before you even do it with your mind. So. Well, our, our brains are modular. That is, we have many, many, many neural networks operating simultaneously, mostly subconsciously. Just Most of what the brain does is just runs your body. So there's no need for you to be aware of the processing of eating the apple and, 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 and how many calories it consumed and all that. You don't need to know that. So most of what we do just kind of happens at the subconscious level. And there's a lot of things that go on. You, you're not even aware, and it's a good thing because you, you would just you'd be walking around in a blurry blaze of too much stimulation. So, um, and, but 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 so, so that, that's kind of a deterministic argument that much of what happens you're not really choosing. Yeah, but you can become aware of some of those impulses and then take control of them. And we do that all the time. Addicts really do overcome their addiction. How do they do that? Uh, by training, by being self-aware, by by developing their willpower or self-control, and there's techniques you can read in books about how to do that. And there's you know there are tried and true methods that people that work with addicts, for example, have developed. You know, here's six things you can do to 
change your behavior. And, and, and we know that, that some of these work better than others. So that's part of that degrees of freedom. Yeah. Wow. So I would ask what's next for you, but I'm scared you might tell me death. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, <laughs> no, uh, 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 what's next? <laughs> well, right, right now I'm you know, kind of doing my book tour, but, but um, next book I, I haven't decided yet. I'm not sure. I, I may write a book about how lives turn out. That is, you know, all the things that come together to shape a life from behavior genetics and and upbringing, developmental, psychology, life, history, research, culture, environment, you know, all that. Uh, maybe. I might do that. Or I might try my hand at science fiction. I, I've long wanted to write science fiction, you know. So. Yeah. Well, that'd be interesting. Either way, I'm sure it'll be good. This was uh, a great book, by the way. I would say a great read, but I, I, it was a great listen. Um, <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I really enjoyed it. It's um Definitely the best thing I've, I was going to say I've read this year, but it's only February. But, um, well, thank you very much for being on the show and and the book and everything. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.